Dear fathers, we come here today. We truly want to commit our souls into your care. Pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us so that it may teach us to understand what is happening here in the story to, in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and also truly take to heart uh, what it means for our lives today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, there are many things uh, that we take for granted in life. Uh, things that we, appreci- we don't appreciate till we lose them. So maybe you can think of some of those things. Uh, good health, friendships, uh, freedom. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, I had this knee pain and I couldn't walk for a little while. Every time I walked, my knee would you know, stiffen up and freeze up. And I used to think, oh, you know, it would be terrible. Imagine for the rest of my life, I couldn't walk. And I really appreciated walking, something we take for granted. Now imagine if you were blind. You woke up one morning, you couldn't see anything. And you start thinking, you know, the things that you take for granted, you know, seeing the blue sky, the sunshine, the 3D movie, whatever, you'll never be able to see them again. And, uh, and you, you realize what a great thing you've lost. Uh, and I want to look at that today in terms of the Word of God. Because in today's passage, uh, what was happening was, the Word of God, it says, was rare, was uh, quite empty. Uh, it was not happening very much. In Israel. Now, if you look at today's passage, over the last few weeks we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel and before that also the book of Judges, and we see that things were not good among God's people in Israel. Uh, first of all, uh, right at the end of the book of Judges, which just comes just before the, the period of 1 Samuel, we saw that, uh, if you can see up here on the slide, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. And we focused on how God's people were lawless. They were living without God. They didn't obey God and neither did they choose to serve God. Everybody did their own thing. And last week we saw that Israel's leadership was corrupt and evil and wicked. Uh, as an American pastor said, they were scumbags. Okay? They were scumbag priests who did not lead the people but instead abused the people and use uh, their, their leadership position to exploit others and to basically uh, enrich themselves. But today, we add to those two things, scumbag leadership, people doing their own thing, and the third thing now is, the word of the Lord was rare. That's what it says there in the beginning. Okay, in verse 1. Now, silence is golden, some people say, but silence in this case was not golden because for God's people, His word was like spiritual food. Like spiritual food. And what was happening is, among God's people at this time, they were living in a spiritual famine. There was no word from God. They were like uh, dying or starving or having malnutrition because God's word was not coming to them. And it says there in verse 1, if you have your Bibles, okay, this, uh, this uh, passage is all about God's word, so you need God's word in front of you. It says there, that the Lord's, the word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions. Now we uh, think of a very corrupted version of vision, I think, today. When we think of vision, we think of people who have maybe have visions of uh, Mary or something, or visions of Jesus. And whenever we think of visions, we always think of the experience of a vision. People say, oh, I want to see God. And what they're really saying is they want to have an experience of God, but they're not so much interested in the message but here, if you look at this passage, it says that the word of the Lord was read. There were not many visions. And what it was saying was, it was not visions so that people could see God or experience God, but rather 
the, the, the message that was coming from God was missing. So what was really being said here was the divine communication between God and His people had broken down. God was no longer speaking. It was like the uh, Wi-Fi, the heavenly Wi-Fi internet connection was down. No server, right? No God server, not a Singtel. Okay. Now in verse 2, it goes on to say, and it gives us a hint about why this was happening. Because it says, One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. Now, if you actually pay attention, and we should always pay attention when we look at God's Word, uh, it's interesting how Eli is described. Because we know that Eli from last week is a very old man, he's a very weak man, uh, physically weak. Why, why didn't he say he was so old that he couldn't hear? Or he was so old that he was really tired all the time? Or he was so old he could hardly walk? Why does it say here that he could hardly see? And many people say, well, it's actually linked because it says there, in the verse before, the, the word of the Lord was read, there were not many visions. And the next verse is, Eli could hardly see. So in one sense, Eli is part of the problem. See, as we saw last week, Eli was, uh, you know, his sons, Hobni and Phinehas, they were corrupt, they were wicked and evil, and he didn't do anything about it. He was part of the problem, he wasn't the solution. And that's why he could hardly see, and part of his lack of sight didn't just uh, focus on spiritual, sorry, physical uh, sight, but his his spiritual sight was, was weak. And we also knew that uh, because he's very weak now, as you can see, he's getting, his eyesight is getting worse and worse. In the next chapter, you can see that he, can, he, he, he can't see it all. We know that he's on his last legs, and if he dies, who will take over from, from him? Uh, the scumbags, right? Hopni and Pinehas. So if the word of God was rare in Eli's day, it would be positively extinct when his children, Hopni and Pinehas, came. Because part of the reason why the word of God was rare in those days was because the spiritual leadership of God's people was corrupt and evil and wicked. So as we come to uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, the question that we should have as God's people, if the, as the original Israelites reading 1 Samuel will be asking us, what is to become of God's people? What is the hope for God's people? What is the future for God's people? And then we come to this very curious and familiar story of Samuel and his running around, isn't it? Because when you think about it, actually, you know, if you wanted to write a very short story, you could just say that God called Eli, sorry, God called Samuel three times and uh, Samuel ran around for three times and then he heard God, right? So why does he, why does the writer, you know, spend this extended time telling us about this back and forth movement between Samuel, Eli and God? Okay, so Samuel listens to this voice. He's, he's sleeping in the temple. He hears this voice. He gets up. He runs, right? He runs to Eli and he says, Here I am, you called me. And then Eli says, No, 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 I didn't call you. Go back and sleep. He goes back again. He lies down. He hears this voice again. He gets up. He runs to Eli. Eli says, No, 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 it wasn't me. Please, please go back and sleep. He goes back and lies down. He gets up again. He goes to Eli. He says, No, no, it's the wrong person. Go back, it's God, right? So why does this happen? Why are we told this thing? And why, what are we to learn from it? What's the point of it? Uh, you know, he just had too much ink, the writer? Okay, why does Eli, sorry, why does Samuel not understand what is happening here? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 7, right? So in verse 7, we are told uh, exactly why this back and forth thing is happening. It says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord 
had not yet been revealed to him. Okay, that's what God's word says, that's what the Bible says. Now if you look at this verse, it is a very curious verse. Because it says that Samuel keeps going back and forth, back and forth because he does not yet know the Lord. Now, in chapter 2, verse 12, which is up here, uh, we were introduced to Hobney and Pinehas, and they were wicked, really wicked. Remember the word there, wicked, was the same word which was used to describe homosexual rapists earlier on. So they were really bad people. But why were they wicked? Because it says there, they had no regard for the Lord. Okay, that's what your NIV says. But literally, if you look at your other translations, like the ESV or something like that, it says, they did not know the Lord. Exactly the same way that Samuel is described here. Here, okay? Hobney and Pinehas are described, they did not know God. Eli, oh, sorry, Samuel is described, that he did not yet know the Lord. So what is happening here? How is Samuel the same as Hopney and Pinehas? Or is he a different sort of not knowing the Lord? I guess the only difference would be the word yet, isn't it? The word yet. But really when you look at the context of what's happening, they are very different people. Because the verse actually explains how they did not know God. So for Hobney and Pinehas, they did not know God or they had no regard for God in the NIV because they were wicked. Uh, in the rest of last week's passage, we learned that they scorned God, they despised God, they kicked out of God, they had contempt for God. So actually, they did not know God because they had no interest in God. It's a bit like uh, I was going to a community center one day and I went to the lift and uh, there was this little girl, uh, very cute, dressed as a ballerina, she came in and then just after her, another girl came in, very cute, so just like her dressed in a ballerina and they were standing, I was standing in the lift and they were standing in separate corners, right? And then the ballerina, one of the cute girls, said to the other girl, I don't like you. Stand far, far, far away from me. And that's why they were standing in different corners, right? And that was why Eli's, Eli's sons, Hopney and Pinehas, did not know God. Because they didn't want to know God. They were wicked men. They were asking God to stand far, far away from Him. But, here in chapter 3, Samuel does not yet know the Lord, because not because he's wicked, but because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And what is actually saying, he did not know God in a way a prophet knows God. He, didn't, he, did not, he, he couldn't recognize God's voice because God hadn't spoken to him like this before. So every time he heard a voice, he thought, must be Eli, not God, because he never recognized God's voice. Now, it's not that Samuel was not a, a, a believer, okay? because in chapter 2, verse 26, it says that he was growing in stature among people and with God. Do you remember that? What it's saying here is Samuel did not know God as a prophet. He could not recognize God's voice. And that's, that's why every time, if you look in the Bible so far, in chapter 2, verse 11, in chapter 2, verse 18, in chapter 3, verse 1, it keeps saying, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. So he knew God through the teaching of Eli, but he didn't know God directly from the Lord God in heaven. He, he never heard his voice. So that's why I like the translation, the next one, uh, the, new, the Good News Bible. I rarely use the Good News Bible. Uh, maybe I used to read it when I was a child or something. But the Good News Bible translates things in a very literal, uh, not in a literal way, but in a very free form way, right? 
So I think they have the, the translation right there because it says that Samuel did not know God because the Lord had never spoken to him before. He hadn't heard the voice of God, so he didn't know God in that way. So here, finally, as we come to the end of him running back and forth, he recognizes that it is God speaking to him. And what happens? From verse 8 onwards, the Lord called Samuel a third time, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. And then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. Then Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. If he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood there calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Now, how are we to understand this passage? Uh, part of the problem is that uh, for some of you who have been Christians, you've, you know this story. How many of you know this story before we read it today? Many of us, right? It's a very common children's church story. The problem is that it is not written for children. Okay, when the Israelites read this, when God's people read this in the past, it was meant for big people, adults, okay? Big boy story, big girl story. But the problem is nowadays we take this story and we take it out of its historical connection, out of the biblical context, and we want to apply it directly to ourselves or maybe to, to children as individuals. So what do we learn from this? What are the song, wrong ways that we apply this passage today? Well, I've, I've heard of different ways. Some of them are quite amusing. Some people say, well, we must be like Samuel. See, God called. And what did Samuel do? He got up out of bed straight away and he ran to Eli. So in the morning, children, when your parents call you to go to school, what do you need to do? You need to get up straight away and run to your parents to get changed, right? Okay, now that's the wrong application obviously but then some other people say you know maybe when we listen to God's word we need to speak those magic words because what were the magic words that Samuel said before God spoke to him speak for your servant is listening so maybe God hasn't answered your prayer because you haven't said those magic words you know God hasn't spoken to you because you haven't said those magic words you haven't said to God speak for your servant is listening if you only speak those words God would speak to you and you would you get your prayers answered, God will speak to you. No, that's not the right application too. Maybe some other people will say, when is the best time to listen to God? At night. You must do your quiet time at night because it's really quiet, right? Because you know, Samuel, it was not at night and, and he, God spoke to him. So night time, that's when you need to, to pray to God. That's when God is really listening. Or, another wrong application might be, Samuel needed help to hear the voice of God. You know, he, need to, he needed Eli to help him understand that God was speaking to him. So you need to listen to somebody else too. You need to listen to your pastor. Right? You need to listen to your pastor so that you can hear God speaking to you. Or maybe you need to listen to your parents. But you see, that's, that, that's uh, all well and good. But it takes Samuel, the story of Samuel out of its context, and out of its biblical context and its historical context. What is the context? What is happening here? Why is God speaking to Samuel? Uh, what is the situation here? Well, the situation in verse 1, as we saw, was the word of the Lord was rare. The word of the Lord was rare. And therefore, God was working through Samuel to give him the word of the Lord. If you look at this passage, what is the word which is repeated over and over again? Look carefully. 
Did you repeat it 11 times there? This particular word. Okay, you should have your Bibles in front of you. What is the word that's repeated there? Is the word called. God is at the center of the story. God is calling Samuel. Samuel is not at the center of the story. It is God calling Samuel who's at the center of the story. Samuel was not listening to God. He was not awake listening to God. Right? Whether God, Samuel said the magic words or not, that's not the important point. God is the center of this message. And he is the one calling Samuel because the word of the Lord at this time was rare. So we must never take it out of his context and sort of, you know, apply it all over the place, but see how God is working here. Now, what is the word of the Lord that God wanted to reveal to Samuel? Well, in verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him, I would not judge, sorry, I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, uh, the tingling here, uh, the message that the God has told Samuel that makes people's ears tingle, is not a pleasant feeling. It's not that he's got uh, menthol or vix on his ears. Right? It's not an ear massage. But tingling in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament particularly, is because there is such a terrible message that your ears tingle because you hear this terrible message. And basically, uh, it's so good because we studied this last week and we see that God is actually confirming the judgment against Eli's family that the prophet, the man of God, originally brought against Eli's house. But we're given more details here. And last week we saw uh, that Eli was told by the man of God, um, a man of God, that God would judge him. But we're not sure why. Why, why, why did uh, Eli get judged? Well, here in verse 14, it says there more clearly now than last week that he failed to restrain them. He failed to restrain them. Last week it says that he honored them more than God. But how? Because he failed to restrain them. And we saw last week his sons, they were stealing the sacrifices meant for God. They were abusing the sacrificial system. They were eating the fat which was meant for God. They were sleeping around with the women working in the temple. And what did Eli do? He rebuked them, he corrected them. Don't know whether he shouted at them, banged the table, or maybe he said it very quietly. But in the end, what did Eli do? Nothing. He did not remove them from the temple. He did not remove them from the positions of priests. He did not restrain them. See, when we look at Eli, he's kind of like a sympathetic character. He's kind of a complex character. He's a good person in the end. I mean, he treats Samuel really well. Don't you think so? He's like a stepfather to Samuel. He's really nice to Samuel. He seems to hourly do the right thing. But he's a weak man. He's a weak man. Uh, he honors his sons. Last week we read, he honors his sons more than God. Uh, he probably preferred the love of his children more than the love of God. He preferred the praise of man more than God. And because of that, God says, because you have failed to restrain your sons in this way, uh, you will be judged. 
Now I'm sure that uh, during that time there were many other parents uh, in Israel whose children were willful, wild and disobedient, but they weren't cursed in this way. Why was Eli cursed in this way? What was so special about Eli? Well, he was the chief priest. And because his sons played the role of priest in the temple, he should have put aside his family loyalty and removed them as priests and honor God first. But he failed to do that. And that's why I was listening to this pastor called Dick Lucas and he said that the, the leader of God's people is not just a good person but a, a strong person who must always put God's interest first. And he must not be a people pleaser. Right? Because here, Eli, I think, wanted to please his children. He wanted to love his children more than he wanted to love God. He, he wanted the praise of his children more than he wanted the praise of God. And the sin of Eli was that he was almost like a nice person. You know, he was a very nice person. He didn't want to offend his children. He, wanted, he didn't want to make the hard decisions um, at the expense of his human relationships. And therefore God uh, judged him because of that. Not because he himself sinned, but because he was unwilling to protect God's people in God's temple. Now, how do we understand that today? Uh, I think that uh, if you're a leader of the church or if you're a part of the church, there is a principle where, like Eli, if you know something which is wrong, uh, we have responsibility to correct it and to restrain people. I know of a story of a pastor who once suspected a member of his church uh, for having a, an affair. And uh, this person, this pastor, instead of confronting this person, he was a very nice person, he just sort of kept hinting to this person, oh, you know, how's things? But he knew, he had heard from someone that this person was having an affair. But he failed to restrain that person or correct that person until it got worse and worse and worse and the whole thing blew up. And then I heard from this other person that actually the pastor knew, you know, why didn't he come and correct me earlier on? And that's the same thing. You see, look carefully in verse 13. See, God says that he, he knew about the sin, but He failed to restrain them. He failed to act. And even today, when I go to meetings with other pastors, I see the same thing. Many nice people, many good people, but they fail to be strong and protect God's people and God's church. I know people who, uh, when you say, oh, you know, this so-and-so is doing this, right? Don't you think that's wrong? Don't you think it's against the Bible? And they say, oh, well, you know, different people have different ways of doing things. Or you say, you know, I heard of this person, you know, don't you think that their actions are ungodly? And they'll say, well, you know, we should love them. Because, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're too hard on them, correct them, they might leave the church. So, you know, just love them, just keep loving them. Or, you know, some people who are abusing their positions in church, uh, positions of power or influence, they say, oh, well, don't, don't worry about them, you know, it's just their personality. But here we see, uh, I don't know how far I extend into our time, uh, God actually judges Eli because he fails to act to restrain what he knew was sin. And he was in a position of leadership and he didn't do anything about it. So here I wonder whether for ourselves there's a warning that if we know that something is wrong, whether if we fail to act, whether we too are guilty because we have failed to look after God and honor Him this way. Now in verse 14 it goes on and it says, Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never 
be atoned for by sacrifice and offering. Now, last week, um, Eli actually says this, the very same things to his sons, right? If you turn back with me to chapter 2, uh, verse 25. If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? And the idea is the same, that uh, what was happening was, Eli's sons, Hopni and Pinehas, they were actually sinning against the sacrificial system that God had put in place to bring forgiveness to his people. See, God was very clear. If you sin against God, it is a serious, serious thing and it must be paid for. Sin and guilt must be paid for. And how do you pay for it? You pay in blood. You pay in the blood of bulls or goats or you pay by your own blood. And uh, that's why Hobney and Pinehas, if they were to find forgiveness, they would have to find it in the sacrificial system. Uh, you imagine church, right? Our church is a very clean, pristine place. No, I mean, we, we don't eat. We're not allowed to eat in here, right? But imagine the temple. The temple was full of blood. There was food everywhere. Don't worry about eating. There was blood everywhere. And like my theological college lecturer said, why was, there, why was there such an emphasis on blood? Because blood represents life. And the message of the sacrifice was to show that your sin was a serious thing because you had to kill another animal and spread all this blood everywhere because you had done something really serious. But Eli's sons, Hopni and Pinehas, last week we saw that they scorned and they kicked out at God's sacrifice. They treated it with contempt. And therefore, like Eli has, had prophesied for them in a way, and said, so you keep doing this, where will you find forgiveness? Where will you find atonement? Where will you find uh, a washing away of your guilt? You will not find it. And that's why God says the same thing. Right? The guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for or by sacrifice or by offering. Because they have not just sinned against man, they have sinned against God and His sacrificial system. Now God's word is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow and His principle still holds today. Now we know in the New Testament that uh, the, the sacrifice of bulls and goats never really solved the problem of sin. It never really brings atonement, never really brings forgiveness. It's actually just pointing forward to Jesus dying on the cross. Because Jesus' blood, that is the one that really brings forgiveness and atonement. So in Romans chapter 3 and in 1 John chapter 2 up here, Right? It says, uh, There is no difference, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Okay, in 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So actually the sacrificial system was pointing forward to Jesus dying on the cross, and His blood, His blood is effective for our sins, for paying for our sins. But what happens if we treat Jesus Christ on the cross the same way as Hopney and Pinehas viewed the sacrificial system? Well, the Bible is the same. It says the same thing. If you despise and reject and kick at and scorn Jesus and the cross, 
then there is no sacrifice available for you, no forgiveness available for you. So in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? See, that's a very ear-tingling message, isn't it? Uh, we can read 1 Samuel and think, okay, it doesn't tingle my ear. Who cares about Eli? I don't know him. Right, but in Hebrews... It's speaking about us, you, me. Where if we are like Hopney and Pinehas and we trample on God's sacrifice, we insult the Spirit of grace, then God says there is only judgment. There is no expectation uh, of a sacrifice of sins for us. So we hear this, it should make our ears tingle. If it doesn't make your ears tingle, then you're either sinless or you're not paying attention or sleeping, right? So we mustn't spurn God's forgiveness. We, we mustn't be like Hopney and Pinehas. We mustn't kick out at God's sacrifice. We mustn't keep sinning in a high-handed or willful way, in a bochup way. But we must continue always to be uh, thankful and to keep being really, really uh, serious about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. If not, we'll end up just like Hopney and Pinehas. Now, uh, in verse 15, Samuel lay down. It didn't say Samuel went to sleep, bro. I don't think he went to sleep after that. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Obviously he would, right? But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Is Samuel a good guy? I mean, Eli is a good, a good stepfather almost, right? Samuel answered, Here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. And then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Now imagine if you had received this message from God and you had to tell it to someone you really, really loved. It would be a terrible thing, a terrible message to send. But it says here that Eli told him everything. And just in case... uh, you wanted to be sure that he told him everything. It says, he hid nothing from him. Nothing was hidden from uh, Eli. So here we have uh, almost like a pure, you know, before that, the internet connection between us and God was broken, but now we have a pure connection and nothing was missing. Right, the server is up and running. God is speaking clearly again to his people. And here we see that that is the beginning of the role of Samuel. Here is the first time that he acts like a prophet because he tells the message. He's like a transparent window, right? The whole message, and nothing but the message, comes through from God to Eli. And that is the role of a prophet. Because the prophet is just a messenger. He doesn't change God's message. He doesn't play with it. He doesn't take away the bad parts and put in the good parts. He just communicates the message. Now, a pastor in America... I was saying, okay, how do you spot the false prophet today? Okay, how do you spot the false prophet? So he said, okay, if this person looks good on television, be very suspicious. Right? He says, 
because religion and TV do not mix. Says, you know, this person is really, really good looking in TV, really slick, then maybe he focuses not on the, mes- the message, but on the packaging. So that's why I don't look so slick, right? Okay? <laughs> and he said, the next thing he says, look at his hair. Right? If he does a lot of things with his hair, it's all dyed and all, you know, really nicely done. He says, be very suspicious of that person too. Right? Why is it there is no ugly evangelist, he said. Okay? He said, is this person... Uh, does this person have all the trappings of fame and power and wealth? Do, you know, does he drive expensive cars and, and have luxurious homes? Okay, beware of that person. Beware of anyone who says they can never do, there's nothing they cannot do, there's no illness they cannot heal, or nothing that cannot be achieved through them. Okay, be very careful about that person. And this American pastor also saying, be also very careful of the person who's always telling you how good they are and all the good things they've done to impress you. And he gives the example of Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham gave away millions of dollars uh, and it was only found out after his death that you know, he did so anonymously. He says, The false prophet always watch out for those people who are always asking for money. I don't trust them. But above all, and most of all, I think looking at this passage, the false prophet is the one that doesn't tell the 100% of the message. Because look at Eli and Samuel. Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from it. Even all, all of it was bad news. There are people today uh, who say out without shame that they will not preach parts of the Bible because it is not attractive to people. You can go to some churches in Singapore and they'll say that. I choose not to preach this part because it is not attractive to people. They will not come to church. But that is not the role that God wants for his uh, people, isn't it? His leaders. He wants the whole message. Who is the, the messenger? Is, is you. You are the messenger. God is the, the one who is actually the origin of the message. He wants you to tell everything. If you look at the Bible, the Bible is full of things which are unpleasant, which will turn off people. Judgment, hell, repentance, correction, rebuke. A pastor of mine in Australia once said, if you open the Bible and you read it for a little while and it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, then you're not reading it right. And that's true, isn't it? When you, when you look at God's Word, it is an uncomfortable message. It, it will make your ears tingle at some point in, in time. And here, Samuel is very different. He does not hide anything. He tells the whole message of God to Eli. And it marks him out as God's prophet because he doesn't hide anything. And he goes on, and because of this one characteristic, I suppose, of Eli, uh, sorry, of Samuel, he says in verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to pay at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And the Lord's word came to all Israel. Now, if you actually look at this passage, you think, well, what's the big deal, right? It's actually repeated. Uh, when it says... Okay, and if you look at this verse carefully, look carefully at it, right? What, what phrase seems to be repeated here? All Israel, right? Verse 20. All Israel from Dan to Sheba recognized him, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. See, when we began in chapter 3, the word of God was rare. Was rare. But now the word of God comes to all Israel. It fills up. It's like a, it's like a cup, right? Before it was like nearly empty, and now it's overflowing. Because God speaks through Samuel. Now I think that um, 
is a bit of a lesson to us, isn't it? Because what is the answer to the problem of God's people? Remember, they were lawless. They, they didn't recognize God. They didn't serve God. The leaders were bad. What was the first thing that God did? He sent them His Word. His Word is the foundation of God's people. That's what the people need. They didn't need organization. They didn't need techniques. They didn't need music. They didn't need a constitution or clergy. They needed God's Word. And I think it's the same for us. When you go to church, what is the, what is the heartbeat of that church? Uh, the church mustn't be built on you know, the clergy or the marketing or organization or music or techniques. You can go to many churches. I've been to many churches where there's great music, great organization. Everything is running really well, but there is a spiritual famine. People are not being fed God's word. But here, we look from this passage and the key is God's word. God's word coming to his people. Now why? Why is the word so important for God's people? Okay, Why not music? Why not organization? Why not uh, something else? Okay, and this is where, again, you need to pay attention. See, in verse 21, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. What does God do through his word? Look at that verse. Look at the verse. What does it say? What does God do through his word? He reveals himself. See, God's word is not here to solve my problem. Right? God's word is not here to give me a plan for my life. God's word is not here to tell me uh, who I should marry tomorrow, right? God's word is about God. It's not about me. And I think that that's so important for us because many people these days, we take the Bible, God's word, and we try to look in God's word and say, okay, what is it saying to me today? So, you know, maybe I feel anxious. Okay, now I need to go and read Philippians chapter 4 and tell me not to be anxious about anything. I feel... Uh, you know, my self-esteem is not so good. I should read a psalm about how God made me. You know, I, I feel tired, so I should go and read about how God, you know, gives rest to the weary. But you see, the Bible is not so much about us, but it's about God, isn't it? God revealed. Look at what it says again in verse, verse twenty. God revealed Himself to Samuel through His Word. See, that's why God's people needed His Word so badly because. It is God's word, through God's word, God reveals himself to his people. You know, we often come across many people who now say, okay, I want to meet God. God reveals himself through a vision, a miracle. I've been invited to church, right? And someone said, oh, come, we've got a healing service today. And I said, but there's nothing wrong with me. And he said, oh, at that point in time, now I'm older. Right? So I said, there's nothing wrong with me. And he said, well, come anyway, because you know, God will reveal himself when someone is healed. But that's not true, isn't it? Because God is revealed, it says here, through His Word. He didn't send a vision or a healing to everybody in Israel. He sent Samuel, and through Samuel, His Word, He reveals Himself to Israel. So where should we go to find God? Uh, just recently, someone was telling me how they take a, they're taking a week off to go to some spiritual retreat. This is a per- Christian person in a very quiet place. And there, in that quiet place, for the whole week, all they do is they sit there in the quiet and they look deep inside themselves and ask God, what do you, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Right? But we don't find God that way. We find God in His Word. Because God, in God's Word, He reveals Himself to us and what His will is. 
So when we read God's word, it's not, what is God's plan for me? When we read God's word, it's, what is God's plan? And how do I fit in His plan? See, it's a very different approach, isn't it? So in conclusion, as you look at this passage, the need for Israel is God's word. God sent Samuel with his word to reveal himself. Now, do we appreciate God's word in that way? I um, remember meeting with someone who used to come to our church. And I met up this person a few years ago. And uh, this person was saying, oh, I feel really spiritually dry. I feel really distant from God coming to church. Feels like, you know, I'm not really in touch. Feels like a charade. So I said to this person, are you reading your Bible? Are you going to Bible study? Are you preparing to listen to God when you listen to the sermon? And the answer was no, no, no. I said, okay, why don't you go and read your Bible more? Why don't you go to Bible study? Why don't you pray, you know, do your quiet time, come to the service, listen to God's word. Okay, so a few weeks went more. I met up with this person again. Same thing, I had the same conversation. Oh, I feel my relationship grew very cold. I feel very far away from God, very distant. So I said, well, did you read your Bible? No. Did you been, have you joined a Bible study group like I told you to? No. When you come to church, are you listening to the sermon properly? Are you, are you, have you read the passage? She said, no. And I said, why not? I said, well, I'm really busy. The person said, no, I'm so busy at work. I've got so many things to do. But this person, you know, he also has a very full life. You know, I, I look at his Facebook Got a lot of, he's filling up his Facebook regularly he's got lots of hobbies going on holidays unfortunately this person doesn't come to church anymore he doesn't go to any church and they're not Christian anymore what will happen? what is the diagnosis of the situation? this person died of starvation spiritual starvation because he never fed himself on God's word He didn't want to choose to go to Bible study. He didn't read his Bible. He said, God is far, far away from me. But how do you you make him feel closer? You need to keep coming back to God's word so that you may know of his character, know of him. And this person, you know, you can die of starvation not because of the lack of food, but the lack of appetite. You don't go out. There's there's food all around. The Bible's there, but but you're not reading it. So I wonder whether that's the case for, for, for you. You struggle with reading your Bible and take it for granted and you, don't, you just don't read it for weeks and then. I, I had a very um, uh, interesting um, uh, experience a few months ago. I found someone's Bible from church. The person will remain unknown here. And later the next week, I said, Hey, you left your Bible at church, you know? And then the pastor said, Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I did, huh? Then I said, well, How did you survive the whole week without your Bible? Oh yeah. How did you survive the whole week without your Bible? Obviously, you're not reading it, right? And somebody else was telling me, they went on a business trip. And then I asked them, I was doing emails, and they said, how's your quiet time doing when you're over there? And he said, oh, um, not very good. And I said, "Um, um, why not? I forgot to bring my Bible with me. I didn't bring my Bible with me. So the thing is, is, is how can you expect to continue on in your Christian life how can you expect to keep going strong in your Christian life when you don't actually read God's word? When it's not something that shapes you and feeds you, something that actually reminds you that God, of who God is and what He's doing in this world and that you are plugged into His plan. Because if you are not actually part of that, you are actually 
malnourished, you're starving yourself. And uh, it is a great, great famine in your life. And if you keep going along that way, then uh, maybe you end up like this person, the person I was telling you about. You would just, you would just die of starvation. And you would just forget all of God's promises and all of the things that God means to you and all of what the reality of eternal life will be. So, I pray for all of us that we will learn the lesson from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3. and see that the greatest need for every Christian person, every one of God's people is really God's word and we need to take it seriously. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, we truly pray that we will take your word seriously, that we will see that our greatest need is your word, because through your word, you reveal yourself to us. We pray that we may be disciplined, and we may desire to read your word more than the newspapers, or watching television, or surfing the net, because we see that through reading your word we come to know you and what you are doing in this world, what you have done for us in Jesus. And there is eternal fruit in what we do. And, uh, dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us that you may not grow cold to us uh, because we fail uh, to read your word. We pray for each and every one of us that the Holy Spirit will always prompt us and move us to keep reading your word and be filled with it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.